Hello and welcome to the CU20 podcast. We're a group of young adults who meet together to talk about what it means to follow Jesus in our modern world. The podcast you're about to listen to is a recording of the sermon preached on Luke chapter 20 and part of our ongoing series as we look through the book of Luke. We hope you enjoy it. So, I, uh, I, love, I love that video a lot. And thankfully, uh, even though that's kind of what I've come to expect a lot of times from a lot of the political commentary I listen to or just media that people present as uh, good, I'm glad that Jesus is far more adept at answering these issues. He's far more uh, authoritative in what he says, and he answers and gives much, much better answers than those as well. So Luke chapter 20 is where we're at, and starting in verse 20. We're going to read it, and then we're going to pray, and then we're going to unpack it together. Luke 20, verse 20. Keeping a close watch on him, they sent spies who pretended to be honest. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said, so they may hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. So the spies questioned him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right, and you do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? He saw through their duplicity and said to them, Show me a denarius, whose portrait and inscription are on it. Caesar's? They replied, he said to them, then give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. They were unable to trap him in what he had said there in public and astonished by his answer, they became silent. Let us pray. God, we want to look to you and to your wisdom to help us form all of our life, God, And in the area where it comes to our dealings in politics, how we engage as citizens of a nation, we ask God that you give us the wisdom and discernment to know how to best represent Christ and this important answer that he gives so that we might not be caught in similar traps or fall into error in the way that we uh, seek to to be faithful to you. We pray, Lord, that in all that we do, we would be faithful. We would be uh, people of integrity, people of compassion, uh, and people of wisdom. May you enable us within us by your Holy Spirit's work. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the question they're asking there is obviously a loaded one, but it also has a lot of history to it as well. This is something I was discovering as I sort about preparing the sermon today, was the history behind this was actually quite rich. Now, they weren't simply speaking about tax in general. They were goods tax and import tax and things like that. They were referring specifically to a kind of tax known as the head tax. The head tax was a, it wasn't even that much money. It wasn't a huge tax, but it was a tax on personhood. It was essentially, you had to pay a tax for, I guess, the privilege of being a citizen of, uh, being a subject of Caesar. And by paying it, you're essentially acknowledging that you are, in fact, a subject of Caesar. And so it kind of really grated against that nationalistic identity that was very common in Judea, which is we are our own independent uh, people. 
we do not bow the knee to anyone. And even though they were under the, under the control of the Roman Empire, they grated greatly against that. They hated that. And anything they could do to defy that was really what they wanted. They wanted to defy it any way that they safely could. And it wasn't that long ago, just a couple decades back in history, that there was a man who had r risen to prominence called Judas the Galilean. And Judas the Galilean had actually uh, revolted against this very tax, the head tax. He had told people, do not pay this tax. He had also cleansed the temple. He went into the temple and threw out any, anyone who was not Jewish. He threw out any Roman iconography, uh, and he, in that way, cleansed it. And he said, now is the time that the kingdom of God is going to be established. We're going to establish a kingdom right here. This is going to be God's kingdom. And he was brought down. But if you look just a little bit back at, in Luke chapter 20, we see that Jesus has actually just, actually just sort of just a bit before at the end of chapter 19, he's just cleansed the temple. That's when Jesus went in there and he threw out the money changes and he, and he tried to, to reestablish what the temple ought to be. So you can kind of see the parallels here. Jesus has cleansed the temple. Judas of Galilee and cleansed the temple. Jesus has been preaching about the kingdom of God and its imminence. Judas of, the, the Judas of Galilee did the same. And so now the question begins to kind of be spotlighted on this issue. Well, what do you think about the head tax? So they don't make this question up out of nowhere. There's a lot of strong parallels, and they're picking up on those parallels to try to force Jesus into one camp or another. Because in their mind, if he does actually say, no, don't pay the head tax, then he's probably going to suffer the same fate as this Judas guy a few, a few years back. He's going, to be, he's going to catch the attention of the Roman Empire, and he's going to be crushed. But if he says yes, all of that recent sentiment that they're assuming is also here in the crowd supporting Jesus, if he says, yes, you should pay the temple tax, then the crowd in their mind might turn against him. Ah, oh, you're a fraud. You've been preaching about the kingdom this whole time. It's not even going to be a real kingdom. How can we have our own kingdom if you're still saying we need to be subject to Caesar? And so in their mind, they're trying to put him into a difficult position where either he, makes, he paints a target on his back or he alienates his base. And so it is a clever question they're asking. It's a clever way to try and trick him. And what Jesus does is flip the answer completely, flip the question completely, because what they're presenting to him is a simple kind of either-or situation, either this or that. And the reason that the answer is in all three Gospels that talk about this says it astounds them. His answer astounds them. There's nothing astounding about the answers we were hearing in that video, and I think quite often there's nothing astounding about the answers I hear from most politicians. But what Jesus said is astounding to them because he totally reframes it to not be an either-or situation, or, but he says a both-and. That somehow he can say yes and no at the same time. And that's what's so astounding about it because it totally reframes the issue. It's basically what Jesus is doing here is he's revolutionizing revolutions. Try to wrap your head around that. The very concept of a revolution is revolutionized by Jesus' statement. And we're going to unpack exactly how he does that. 
But I'd like to take a minute just to appreciate here that even before he answers the question, he has already exposed the cracks in their sort of facade that they're trying to trying to act all humble and pious and teach us, teacher. You're so good. You're so wise. Tell us, tell us. We're not able to answer this ourselves. Give us the answer we're looking for. And he says, do you have a coin? Jesus didn't have one. We can dive into why he didn't have one. Uh, that, I think, says a lot about him anyway. But the fact that he asks them to produce a coin, in that culture, there wasn't one form of currency like there is in Canada. You can only pay with Canadian dollars. There, there was actually multiple sources of currency. There was Greek currency, there was Roman currency, there was Jewish currency, and you could do most of your business and dealings in kind of any of them or most of them. And so if you were a pious individual who found the idea of a Roman coin blasphemous, which indeed it was, to, to a pious Jew because it contained a blasphemous inscription on it. The inscription on the coin was Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. So on the very uh, uh, the, uh, inscription of the coin, it's claiming this Caesar to be divine, to be son of, the go- son of God. And so for a pious Jew, that would be a problem. And you could, you could deal without using those coins at all. The only thing you couldn't do is you couldn't pay your tax in anything but Roman coins. You had to pay tax in Roman coins. And so it's interesting here because they, he's saying, do you have one of these coins? See, they're asking the question of whether we should pay taxes or not. And he's saying, does anyone have a Roman coin? They bring out a Roman coin. The only legitimate reason you would need to have a Roman coin is to pay your taxes. So I don't think it says a huge amount, but I think it's an interesting little caveat to think that he's exposing the kind of facade of the question by showing that they, they've already kind of, they have the answer they're looking for. They've already answered their question. It's in their hand. So the question's a little bit, it's under false pretenses at least. But moving on apart that, we could see that Jesus, after kind of, I think, establishing an upper hand, even from the get-go, is able to answer the question by reframing the either-or question as a both-and. And he's basically suggesting or stating that the government has a right to exist and function. Even a pagan government has a right to exist and function. They have a, plan, they have a part in the plan that God is telling them. Uh, sorry, they have a plan in the, they have a part of the plan that God is, is is bringing forth into the world. And yet their presence does not destroy your allegiance to God. He is saying that to live in this world, to live rightly, means you will have to live as a citizen of the state and as a citizen of heaven and fulfill your duty to both of them. He's bringing both answers together. And by doing this, Jesus is challenging three predominant views that not only existed then, but exist now too. The three challenges Jesus is coming up against is political simplicity, political complacency, and political primacy. And we're going to unpack those three now. Political simplicity is something which absolutely exists right now today as well as it did back then. It's about the idea that there's only really one way to go about things. There's only one right answer. There's only one political party that's the right approach. And... I don't know about you, but I get the feeling today that we're getting more and more and more opinionated and divided up on those opinions when it comes to politics. 
maybe it's just because I'm now an adult and I, you know, I'm part of adult conversations more, but I do feel over the last decade or so, maybe even more, people have been establishing firmer and firmer opinions about things uh, and entrenching themselves and getting this tribalism of us and them type of mentality. So political simplicity is on the rise. There's only one way of doing it, one way of seeing it. And uh, that is funny, a funny little story to illustrate the point. Last Friday, uh, I was uh, on Zoom with the teenagers. And I just sort of it, it drove home to the idea that everyone's got an opinion about something. Like, people have an opinion about everything, essentially. And we were playing Scategories. And one of the teens, uh, Scategories is a game where you have, you get, you're given a letter and then you have to fill in all these different categories uh, with a, an example of something that begins with that letter. So, for instance, if the letter is A, and then the category is, you know, a type of fruit, right? You're going to say apple, right? And so you have a bunch of categories. You have to try to find one that fills in. And so that it was, we had one where the letter was A, and then one of the categories is something you, you would find in your fridge, and you, we, we go through the answers together, and one girl uh, says, she wrote her answer, apples. Something you would find in your fridge, apples. And all through the night, this is the end of the night, everyone has been so hush-hush throughout the whole night, like it's a bunch of teenagers on Zoom, they don't talk. Every single person unmutes their microphone and says, what is wrong with you? Like, who puts apples in the fridge? And it went on for like minutes where, they, where she's like, what's, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with you? It's great to have a cold apple. And everyone's like, no, you're insane. No one puts apples in their fridge. Everyone was just shouting at her about what they thought was this ludicrous idea of having an apple in your fridge. But... That, I mean, that, I think, I, I found that hilarious. And, but it, it illustrates the idea that people hold on to opinions tightly even when they seem like you shouldn't. You shouldn't care what someone, where someone puts their apple. But how often have you heard the phrase recently, you can't be a Christian and vote for that person? Or you can't be a Christian and hold that political opinion? And, you know, if you, if you make the divide something, you know, akin to the sort of conservative slash liberal divide that we'll see in the States, how often have we seen that rhetoric being, being spoken of by both sides? Both of them saying the same thing. There's no way you can call yourself a, a, a Christian and support him. And yet we see that Jesus denies this idea of there being a simple yes and no approach to this, the idea of uh, how, to be, how to answer political questions as a Christian. We tend to leave no room for complexity, no room for nuance, no room for alternate perspective or differing strategies of even focusing on the same goals. And these types of opinions are always wrong-headed, in my opinion, and do great damage to the precious unity of the church. And Jesus provides a critique on revolutions. Like I said before, he's revolutionizing the idea of revolutions here. Because the most extreme version of political simplicity is a revolution. You guys are wrong, and we are going to overthrow you because of this. There's no, you've left us no choice. We're going to overthrow you as a response. And what has happened historically, time and time and time again, is that someone will seize power and what they will produce is simply a rearrangement of the furniture, 
oh, well, you know, now instead of, you know, we harshly punishing this, we're going to harshly punish that. Oh, now instead of these people being oppressed and these people having a cushy life, we're going to oppress these people and give these people a cushy life. You know, people, every time when, when someone will say, we are for the people, what you should really read into that is a, we are for the people who agree with us. And that's it, like all, pretty much every single time. And there's so many examples throughout history where people will overthrow the power just to create something equally as broken and toxic, uh, just with a few of the pieces of furniture rearranged to look different. But at the same time, they're always the same. They come down to the same idea. And at that time in Judea, there were two groups that I want to highlight. There were actually way more than two, but two groups that had responded to Roman occupation in a different way, that, but you can see the kind of simplicity of it as well. There was the Essenes, and the Essenes were a group uh, who they basically, when, they, when the Romans occupied, they kind of packed up shop, and they just walked into the desert, and they just said, we, have, we want nothing to do with society. And they walked there, and they formed their own community completely detached from everybody else, uh, and so they didn't have anything to do. They were essentially an incredibly isolated, uh, small little pocket community uh, that did things exactly as they wanted to do it and had no contact with the outside world, or very limited contact with the outside world. So there was them, total escape, living you know, hyper-pious lives off in the wilderness, or there were the zealots. And the zealots were the, those who thought the only option was violence. And so they were urban terrorists. They were the ones who were trying to revolt against the system and, and drive out Roman occupation and bring things back to the way they think it should have been. So these were two different forms of extremism that had come up. And Jesus critiques the zealots by showing that to be a citizen of a pagan state does not necessarily get in the way of honoring God. You can do both. But he also uh, sort of critiques the Essenes, uh, perhaps not only in this passage, and I, I'll agree this passage doesn't bring that, this aspect of what I'm about to say out very well, but when you look at the totality of what Jesus says about how we are to live as Christians, you could see that the Essenes are not able to fully live out the mandate that God has for them if they completely detach from culture. If they completely detach from society, then how is it possible for them to love their neighbor rightly? Because the system is broken, should we just do nothing? Should we just resign ourselves like there's no hope and so don't even bother? No. We ought to love our neighbors. We ought to pray for those who persecute us. We ought to chase after those who, who are wandering. We should need to do these things. And so Jesus also stands against political complacency. And when I got to this point uh, in writing the sermon, I honestly felt really convicted because this is the one for me that I, that I know I lack a lot. I'm, if you haven't already guessed by some of my tongue-in-cheek comments, I'm a bit of a cynic when it comes to pol politics. I, I genuinely or generally don't really care uh, who's in power. I think they're all the same. And when I was writing this sermon, I really felt convicted that that's not appropriate. Because my cynicism often leads to inaction, that I don't become politically involved, that I don't uh, go out of my way to vote or to voice my uh, opinion in, you know, in meaningful forums on issues. I don't do any of that. And I blame it, well, sort of I, I hide behind the excuse of saying, what's the point? 
But I don't think that's the appropriate Christian response. I'm actually now, I'm feeling convicted that that's not the appropriate Christian response. Does God care how you vote? I think he does. I think he does care. And if you have the ability to vote, which not everyone does, so if you do have the ability to vote, then it's your duty to do so according to how you best see it possible to fulfill the mandate to love God and love your neighbor. I think that's an appropriate Christian response. And so Jesus, I think, would stand against the idea of political complacency. Just don't even bother. Just get out of there. Be in a scene. The last thing that Jesus stands against is political primacy. In other words, God does care how you vote, but it's probably not as important as you think. If you're, if that's the, you're, you know, there's obviously two ways you can fall into error. I think that Jesus is speaking about the, this both-and approach speaks to the idea that at the end of the day, your allegiance to God is what you really need to focus on the most. Give to God what is God's. And what is God's? It's you, your life. Give your life to God. Your political duties can be practiced in a way, in, insofar as they do not get in the way of giving your allegiance over to God. And in that way, Jesus is kind of for limited government. So he's a Republican, right? No, just kidding. That was a joke. <laughs> Don't kill me. So, but only give. But I, actually, the way that it grammatically is, is phrased, you could interpret what he's saying here is to say, only give to Caesar what he is Caesar's, but give to God what is God's. And so he's limiting, by, his, by the way the phrase works, he's limiting what you give to Caesar. He's acknowledging you have something to give to Caesar. It's his anyway. Actually, literally, the way that the government worked at the time, that coin did belong to Caesar. That's, I can try to explain it to you later, but it's not important. But, but give to God what is God's. Your most important duty is to give to God what is God's. Our ultimate allegiance is to God, and therefore our, the most significant part of our life belongs to God. And by establishing that, what he is reinforcing is that we can give our duty over to government without giving them what they ultimately desire. Because at the core of what all governments ultimately desire is completely complicit citizens. And we will not be able to offer them that. We cannot be completely complicit on anything. We cannot just simply be completely you know, voiceless or completely obedient uh, objects of the state to think that no matter what they do, no matter what they say, we will give them our full allegiance. Our full allegiance is to God. And what we've discovered is this attitude, historically speaking, and if you look at the global church today, is what enables us to be able to be in extreme governments, such as what's happening in, in you know, real places around the world today, like certain areas of China, certain areas of the Middle East, where genuine Christians live under totalitarian regimes and are still able to have abundant life as Christians. Now, obviously, they long for better days. And as much as they are able to, I'm sure they work to try and bring more freedom and religious uh, liberty to their lives. But still, as long as they are under those governments, they are still able to live abundant Christian lives. And it's because of the very attitude that Jesus Christ is speaking about here that they are able to do so. They are able to do it because it's crucial that we keep a God-centered perspective in how we live as citizens. 
that where we get our meaning, where we get our true identity, that cannot be taken away or affected ultimately by the state. And we need to pour our endeavors and hope into cultivating that in our lives over and against whether or not our candidate wins or our, our political agenda is the one that's adopted. Those things are good, but they are not ultimate. And we need to treat them as such. Bear in mind that Jesus absolutely, categorically started a revolution. Did he not? Jesus absolutely changed the political face of the world in radical ways. And he did it while preaching this type of ideology of saying you need to keep God in the primary place of the allegiance of your heart and seek to fulfill the duty you have as a citizen of the state. This is not an either-or situation. And because he started the type of revolution that he did, we see that his movement was able to transcend national lines. It wasn't this geopolitical nation that spread out all over, over the world and had to adopt geopolitical types of uh, concerns and strategies. It was a spiritual but very real, very tangible type of revolution that he started. A transformation of people that in every nation that it affected formed distinct colonies of the people of God in the midst of the nations. And our goal throughout the centuries has been to manifest the presence of God in our communal and, and uh, individual lives to show the countercultural approach to life that we are called to express. And that in every single culture, in some way, the gospel will present a type of living that runs contrary to that culture. And we will show the benefit and the beauty of that when we adopt it. And that is to be the thing that spreads our revolution out, the one that Christ inaugurated. As citizens of heaven, we seek, we seek to let that identity affect every area of our life, but we do so primarily by seeking to, to display righteousness and integrity and love in all that we do. And it will take imagination to know how to best fulfill the mandate to love your neighbor and love God when it comes to our legislative duties. How are we to vote? How are we to, to engage in the political uh, field? If you're a Christian and you decide to be a politician, how is that going to affect, how are you going to do that? I agree, that takes imagination. That takes complex, nuanced approaches to things. But... Bear in mind that what Jesus was establishing here is that in the primary place of your life and your heart needs to be your citizenship to heaven is what you're mostly working on. This is a true reformation. This is a true uh, revolution because it's a revolution of the heart. And without that revolution of the heart taking place, we cannot hope that anything that we are uh, attempting to achieve could really be adopted by the world at large. That's why it's been such a horrible mess of a problem when the church has gotten ahead of itself and started to think that it has a place to be you know, a political big hitter in the world or try to use the tools of the government to enforce its will upon someone else. Think of the Crusades. Think of uh, the Inquisitions. Think of you know, just really, really bad, bad historical examples of when the, the church somehow has gotten a hold of political power and has tried to utilize it. It's typically a really bad thing. 
We, it's the, the far more is when we, well, the reason it's a bad idea is because you cannot coerce someone into the kingdom. You can't force someone who doesn't believe in God to somehow start behaving like they do. It doesn't work. The tools we have at our disposal are the, the life of righteousness and integrity and love that Christ calls us to live, of establishing our identity upon him alone and seeking to live that way in community that, and preaching that message to those around us as best we can. That is where the revolution happens. And we seek to, 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 you know, to not push back against the government as if that's you know, ultimately going to do anything but paint a target on our back. Yeah, I, un- I understand, I'm sorry, I'm going off script here, <laughs> but I understand there's nuance here. But please, in the nuance that all of us seek to wrestle with personally, take what Jesus is saying here seriously. We shouldn't think in terms of political simplicity, political complacency, or political primacy. It's just not appropriate for us to adopt that kind of mindset. But if we do take the mindset that Jesus is preaching here to heart, then at the center of our lives, we would not have politics, but we would instead have how best to manifest the presence of the kingdom of God in our communal life. That, therefore, things like you know, uh, cleansing of the temple, making sure that the church is genuinely being the church, is genuinely loving the world and, and, and honoring Christ the way the church ought to. When we have that kind of mindset, okay, let's focus our attention on that and make sure that we're doing well there. That is where the revolution happens. That, when we focus on what should be primary in our individual and communal lives, we see the revolution continue to spread and spread and spread. You know, look at the Reformation. When the church lost its way, it began to decay in all sorts of awful ways. But then when the church found its way again, it spread like wildfire all across the globe again. This seems like a simple approach. It seems like overly simple approach. But bear in mind that this revolution that Jesus Christ started has accomplished far more than any other revolution has in the history of the world. It has had an endurance, and it has had a pervasity, and it has had a tenacity that cannot be matched by anyone else's political uh, agenda or empire-mindedness or whatever else you want to call it. A refusal to give in to the, the broken ideas of political simplicity, complacency, or primacy, to instead place God and our duty before him as our primary focus is what we are called to do as Christians. And remember this too, when we seek to make our political opinions, and obviously we have to, we have to vote one day. You gotta do it, you gotta make a choice. And sadly, in a lot of the systems, uh, a, lot of, a lot of issues are lumped in together, right? It's not possible, almost ever, to vote upon a single issue. You know, you're voting for one side who has these things I agree with and these things I disagree with, and it's the same on that side and the same on that side. And so there's complexity there and how you measure the importance of these things. We know above all of it, we need to maintain unity as a church, giving room for disagreement, giving room for valid uh, you know, conversations about these things. But above all that, remember that the center of our faith is a king who was penniless. Didn't have a coin. Had to ask for one. He was one who died while praying for the forgiveness of his enemies. He's a king, king who has no money, king who dies forgotten and alone whilst praying for his enemies. 
But he's the same one who says, follow me. Do as I do. How does that shape the way that we practice politics? How does that shape the way that we form our positions on issues? It must mean something. I don't have the answer, but it's worth considering, is it not? Why don't we pray together? God, I'm, yeah. We need your help, Lord. This is complicated. And yet, Lord, help us to just to be okay with disagreement, to be quick to listen and so, slow to speak. Help us to genuinely wrestle with you on these issues. Help us to be weary of help us to be weary of the world's solutions to problems. Help us to not become idolaters, idolizing one system over another, thinking that some, somehow that's going to work. God, I just pray you help us to keep what is first, first, and to embrace all of what it means to be a citizen of, of a state as well as a citizen of heaven at the same time. God, as we wrestle with this, help us to see the, amaze, the amazing quality of what Jesus is calling us to here. I'll, I'll admit, I don't quite get it yet. I think I'm, I still haven't quite got it. And yet I still see that there's so much profoundness to it that I want to keep exploring. And I pray, Lord, you help us to all keep exploring uh, and to establish a community uh, and a community-mindedness that will serve us well as we go forward. We ask this so that we might be able to adequately and uh, joyfully represent Jesus, our true king in this world. And in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. If you want to find out more about CU20 and People's Church of Montreal, please visit our website, the details of which are in the show notes below. If you have any questions, please reach out to me by email, again, in the show notes below. Hope you have a great day, and I hope to see you again soon.